next time you're shopping for mountain bike gear, check out singletracks.com slash deals. Each week we share our favorite product picks and exclusive coupon codes from our partners. You can also use the page to search for whatever you're buying from complete mountain bikes to brake sets and tire sealant. That's singletracks.com slash deals. And to get our weekly picks delivered to your inbox, be sure to sign up for our newsletter. Links to the newsletter and deals page are in the show notes. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. I'm Matt, I'm the features editor at Single Tracks, and today I'm here with Jeff, our editor in chief, and we're here with John Hagerman, the mountain biker, U.S. Marine Corps vet, who started the Dirt Therapy Project, a nonprofit founded to connect military vets uh, with mountain biking opportunities. He started the organization in 2018. Thanks for joining us, John. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, we're super excited to have you. Um, for those that don't know, I am a Marine Corps vet as well. And Jeff is actually an Air Force, or an Air Force veteran. And obviously, we both found mountain biking uh, at some point. So it's cool to kind of have that connection and then see organizations like you doing more to bring mountain biking to veterans. So yeah, we're super stoked to have you. Awesome. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, I guess just to dive into here, um, starting off with uh, some real basic information, where are you from and, and why did you join the military? Okay, yeah, some softballs to start off with. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I was born into a military family. So having a from spot, right? Uh, I was born in Germany. My dad was stationed over in Germany for a while, moved to South Carolina at a fairly young age. But for the most part, I claim Utah is where I am from. It's where I spent the most consecutive amount of time in my life. You know, lived with my mom, went to school there, uh, elementary elementary school through high school. And so that's primarily where I grew up um, and how I originally found mountain biking. And then as to why I joined the military. So, you know, coming from a military family, I think it was always something that was at the forefront of my mind. It was, I don't know, it just, it just seemed very natural to me. And then as a kid, I was watching obviously the attacks on 9-11, and uh, it really left a big impression on me. And so that was probably the day I had you know, made the resolve that I was going to join and do my part, what I consider to be my part, to you know, defend the country and just kind of protect our way of life. So it's, those are the, the origin stories. How, how old were you when 9-11 happened? Uh, I was in eighth grade, so not old enough to enlist yet. <laughs> Yeah, it's surprising too that they, they growing up in the military that you wanted to do that. I don't know. I feel like a lot of a lot of kids that grow up like that maybe they would want to choose a different path. Yeah. So my parents separated when I was super young. Uh, my dad went off to Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and that was when they separated. And so I had the stability really of living with my mom pretty much full time. I'd see my dad in the summers and holidays. So I didn't have the traditional, you know, military brat upbringing where I was moving all the time and getting yanked out of schools. Yeah, uh, I had a fairly stable foundation in home life, and then I'd go visit. So maybe that's why I didn't have that bad taste in my mouth. Hmm. 
How old were you, Matt, on 9-11? I was uh, 15. Yeah, I was in, I think it was 15. 14, 15, I was in ninth grade. So, yeah, that, I mean, that definitely got me thinking about it, too, about joining. Yeah, I was on active duty during 9-11, actually. And, yeah, so definitely, like, night and day difference, like, before and after for a lot of people. And, yeah, the people who were currently serving and then, obviously, yeah, it inspired a lot of people to to want to get involved. Yeah. I can't even imagine what that would have been like being on active duty, you know, like your world, it turned everybody's world upside down, but like being on active duty and that happens like, Holy smokes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Stuff got real. Yeah. Were you on lockdown, Jeff? Like, did you guys go into base lockdown and everything or what was the reaction? Yeah, we were. Yeah. We, we actually were like in the middle of a training. It wasn't an exercise. It was, it was like an exercise, but we were being evaluated and we had been like preparing for this big thing for like a year or more. And so like, we were literally like pretending that there was some kind of attack. And then like, this literally happened. Like we had the news on and we're like, Oh wait, like this is real. And so, yeah, we immediately, went into lockdown. And I think that night I was in charge like of our building, like, you know, making sure it was secure and we had 24 hour shifts and all kinds of stuff. So yeah. Yeah. Really, really big, big change. So John, why the, why the Marines? What compelled you to, to do that? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I could ask you the same question, right? We probably both have the same answer. You know, I figured, like I said, I, I kind of knew military was where I was going to go. And, uh, I, I figured that anything worth doing is worth overdoing, right? Like, so in my mind and in reality, the Marine Corps is the absolute best branch there is. Um, <laughs> so, Hey, you know, that's why I signed up. I wanted to be with the best of the best. And I knew that that was going to be most likely my ticket to, uh, going overseas and doing what I thought was going to be my part. And so that's why I joined the Marine Corps. Mm. Sounds like a, something a mountain biker says too, right? Anything worth doing is, is worth overdoing. So already seeing the parallels. That's right. Yeah, it is usually that mindset too. Like most people don't join the Marines for college money. It was like definitely a perk on top of that. But most people who join, they want to go fight. They want to go overseas and, and get into the shit. And um, I think that's like a pretty unifying theme with most Marines. Yeah. And I mean, I was kind of your typical high school meathead. I I played contact sports. I played football. I was a running back. I was a linebacker. I played rugby. And so it just kind of seemed like a natural, the most natural progression to me was something that was going to be uh, an elevated level of physical presence, I guess. Yeah. It's like a challenge element for you. Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, I mean, I guess from there, you know, what was your MOS? Where'd you get stationed? Yeah. So when I, I enlisted, I was a little older than most folks when they enlist. Um, I initially tried joining when I was 17. I went down, I talked to the recruiters. Um, I had everything lined up for the delayed entry program. I had my job selected and I was going to go into the reserves at that time. Growing up and, you know, to this day, very active in the LDS community. And so my immediate after high school plans were to serve a mission. And I knew if I went to the reserves, they would give me where they would allow me to have that two year kind of break after training before going into the fleet, uh, where I could fulfill those duties and responsibilities. So that's what I tried doing. Right. And I go down to MEPS and I'm, I go through all my physical evaluations and some little funky thing came up on my paperwork where they were like, well, 
we're going to have to get an additional waiver from this for your, from your parents. And so they called my parents and both my parents were like, Nope. You know, they said, <laughs> no, we, we said that if anything came up and if this wasn't the right thing for you at this time, that, you know, somehow that would manifest. And so mm. there I am like 17 years old at MEPS trying to get processed into the Marine Corps and, you know, I get turned away and I'm walking out of there with my tail between my legs, just, mm. you know, mortified. So that was my first story, right? Fast forward a few years, I had come home from my mission. I, I did, I served in Sweden for a couple of years, got home in October and by January had, had enlisted, met with the recruiter, took the ASFAB, did all that stuff. The ASFAB score allowed me to kind of pick and choose what I wanted to do. And what I thought that I had initially signed up for, or what my contract was, was going to be an 06, so like a field radio wireman, a comm guy embedded with grunt units. And But there was you know, the trick they always pull, right? So it was an 06 or an 11 option. And we had never even discussed the 11 option. So here I am, I finished boot camp and they're kind of reading out your orders, telling you where you're going to go and what your, your follow on school is going to be. And uh, my drill instructor gets to me and he's like, all right, Agerman, you're going to Camp Lejeune. I was like, okay. He's like, you're going to be, what the heck is the actual official name? An electrical systems technician. So basically I was a, like a, a mobile power guy. I, my schooling consisted of uh, diesel mechanics and electrical theory, um, and I worked on those mo- those mobile generators, like power systems. Um, so that's what my official MOS was, an 1142. Okay. Yeah, funny story. I was also told I was going to be one thing when I joined <laughs> and <ended up> <laughs> a different thing. <laughs> it's common, man. Like, that's, you know, that's everybody's story. So somebody got their, our MOSs, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, the day I was... I was leaving as open contract actually. And I wanted to be infantry at that time. And um, I think infantry was, was full. Like they just weren't accepting new recruits to go into infantry at that time. And so it was open contract. And the second thing I wanted to be was a firefighter. And basically the only option is to be crash fire rescue where, you know, you're like basically on the runway waiting for jets to crash which doesn't happen a lot. And so there's not really much of a need for it. And, uh, but anyway, this like unit gunnery sergeant at MAPS was like, Miller, good news. You're going to be a firefighter. And I was like, Oh, awesome. Hell yeah. And then, uh, a couple months later and I got to MCT, um, combat training, it was, uh, Nope, you're actually going to be aviation ordinance. And I was like, no, that's not, that's not what my recruiter said. I'm supposed to be a firefighter. <laughs> And he said, somebody's got to put the bombs on the plane. <laughs> that was yeah. it. No conversation. <laughs> well, I mean, that's good, man. That, you know, that's a cool MOS. Yeah. Jeff, uh, what did you do? I was in civil engineering. And so, yeah, like I, I kind of had a different path where I had a scholarship in college and it was sort of tied to um, my major in civil engineering. And so... I kind of didn't really want to do civil engineering, but it was sort of just like, well, we paid for you to get this degree. So like, that's what you're going to do. And, and in the air force, you know, civil engineering means, means a lot of things like everything from firefighting to, you know, setting up tents and building runways and mm. basically anything like involving the base uh, infrastructure. So 
Yeah, that's what I did. And and actually, even part of that, what I really ended up doing was more like environmental engineering, um, making sure that the folks on the base were following all the environmental laws and things like that. Certainly not what I imagined myself to be doing, but, you know, these bases and even like when you're overseas on a deployment, like, you know, we're basically operating like a mini city. And so there's every job you can imagine beyond just like the combat operations, uh, just everything like supporting all of that. And so, yeah, that was, that was kind of my role. So John, did you end up stationed in Lejeune? Is that your permanent duty station? Uh, yeah, thankfully no. So my school, my schooling was out there. I was at courthouse Bay on camp Lejeune. That was, you know, schooling was about five months. And then my actual duty station, I guess I grew, I drew the lucky straw. I went to Miramar. So um, just south, yeah, so just south of Camp Pendleton is uh, Marine Corps Air Station Miramar. It's, you know, right by La Jolla. It's not far from downtown San Diego. And my unit, CLC-11, was actually, our, our parent unit was CLR-15 up at Pendleton. And so we were just like a small groundside maintenance detachment operating down on Miramar. So kind of best of both worlds, I guess. Yeah, I... So I was stationed in Miramar too, as aviation ordinance. I was with Miles 11 there, but I mean, yeah, you can't really get a, a better duty station than that. Dude, so we were there at the same time, right? Because when did, yeah. you, when yeah, did you enlist? Um, I was in 2006 to 2010. Oh, man. I, oh, yeah. Okay. So we overlapped for like a year. I, I don't think I got to Miramar until uh, February of 2010. Okay. Yeah, I was... I was... Uh, in Korea at that time. And then I discharged from Pendleton, but yeah, pretty close. Yeah. That's crazy, man. And so, yeah, I guess, you know, the next kind of question that, you know, most vets gets, what was your MOS? Where were you stationed? And then, uh, did you deploy? Uh huh. Yeah. So I, I did deploy. I did have a combat deployment to Afghanistan. So I show up in the fleet. I think, yeah, like I said, it's February and maybe by, at that time, I was I was also engaged. I had gotten engaged um, a few months earlier. I show up to the fleet, bring my wife down. We get well, we get married in May. Bring her down in May, and by that time, I had already been slated for a deployment. Hmm. So basically, when I showed up to the fleet, all the senior leaders were like, "Hey, this is a non-deployable unit. Uh, you're going to do a lot of training while you're here, and that's just kind of the way life is." And with within maybe two weeks. I get pulled into my my uh, staff sergeant's office. He's like, "Hey, they're looking for a couple people to volunteer for this deployment with CLR 15. Do you want to go?" And I said, "Yeah, man, sign me up, uh, absolutely." So volunteered for that deployment. Um, it was with our parent company, CLR 15. So you know, once the dust kind of settled, I got married. My wife came down and joined me. We were living on base right there on Miramar. And they kind of cut me over to CLR 15. So I was driving up to Camp Pendleton every day from Miramar, you know, showing up 06 PT and then working all day, coming home as a little Lance Corporal. So I was obviously always broke, you know, spending all my money on gas and trying to anyway. So, yeah, I did deploy uh, with CLR 15. We showed up at Leatherneck and, you know, Leatherneck's a huge installation. They've got chow halls they've got a few nice gyms they've got a bus system that runs through leatherneck and uh they pull me in uh my platoon sergeant at the time 
and two other folks. So there were four, five of us. They pulled in and like, Hey, you guys are actually going up to Nole, Fob Nole. And I'm like, okay. I mean, at the time it meant nothing to us. Right. So like, okay. Yeah. You five are going up there. You'll be doing obviously maintenance stuff up in Nole. Uh, have fun. We'll see you guys later. Okay. So we go over to the Agdag. We're sitting there. If you've ever flown on a helicopter overseas, you know, that you just sit around basically all day waiting for them to show up. So the Hilo lands, they throw us on there and it starts to get to where it's getting pretty dark. It's late in the evening. And as we're approaching Nole, the, uh, captain's like, Hey, heads up, you know, as soon as we touch down, get off because we've got to go. They've been taking RPG rounds here. Like, Oh my gosh. Okay. So they touch down. We throw all our stuff off. We, uh, jump off the helo it takes off and that was kind of like you know welcome to welcome to Sangin. and um a couple dudes from the unit that we were replacing came out helped us get our gear over to where we were going to sleep over the tents and uh the next few days was kind of just a whirlwind right like trying to figure out everything that's been going on at the time three seven had been out there and they were getting ready to turn over to three five. So third battalion, fifth Marines, the dudes from dark horse were going to come out and they had a completely different strategy and game plan than what had been done out there previously. You know, the Brits were on no lay for a long time. By the time we got there, there was only a few left. And within probably a month of us being there, they had completely turned it over. Three, five showed up. And their game plan was, you know, we're, we are going to take the fight to the enemy. We're not sitting on base. We're not sitting here at the FOB. We're not going to chill out. We have some very strategic ideas and things that have to be done. We need to clear some routes. Route 611 was a big priority for them. And so they did. They, they started taking the fight to, uh, to the Taliban. And as you can imagine, you know, once that starts happening and once you're outside the wire and once you're exposed and vulnerable, you know, dudes started getting shot. And then dudes started dying and it was happening frequently, right? So by the end of our deployment, three, five lost 25 guys, you know, killed in action. And the number of combat ineffective, you know, amputees, double amputees, triple amputees that came out of Sangin was in the hundreds. And so it was an absolutely brutal deployment. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, to answer your question, yes, I deployed and I, I was in Sangin with 3-5. Yeah, and that was, a, as you mentioned, a very intense period of fighting. I mean, what was, what were you thinking? One, you're kind of, you're coming from Miramar, which is a, a lot of units in Miramar. They're not, you know, it's a lot of air wing units. Like you're, you're not seeing a lot of direct combat, but you go from that, you go to Camp Leatherneck, which is, if it was like the base I was like, or I was on in Iraq, it's, you know, like you said, it's got a bus system. It's got all this infrastructure, chow halls. Uh, it might've had like fast food, like Pizza Hut or Subway or something like that. And then all of a sudden you're going to this fob and you know that, you know, that things are going to be different. I mean, like what were, what were you thinking at that time as, as you were waiting for the helo and, and waiting to go to the fob? I mean, at that time I, I had no idea, you know, ignorance was bliss at that point. I had no idea where we were going, what we were getting into you know, stories of Sangin hadn't come out yet because really the big push or the big fight hadn't happened. That's what we we're going into. And so I don't know. I was like, well, whatever. That's, that's where we're going. And then, uh, then we show up and, you know, Fob Nole was basically this compound that the Brits had taken over from, uh, a big drug Lord. Right. So it's, 
there's a couple of houses on the compound. There's some mud huts. There's some walls that are separating different parts of the, uh, of the compound. At one point we, um, our maintenance unit kind of took over this little mud hut area where there was, uh, let's see, one, two, three rooms. One room kind of became where we were putting all our chow. One room kind of came, you know, staff NCO, that's where they're going to do all their work. And they were in there and they saw something poking out of the, the wall, this mud wall. And so they start digging at it and they end up pulling up this sock full of hashish, right? And they're like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> this is where we are. So they obviously turned that into the uh, appropriate authorities. And uh, Yeah, so I mean, it, it was crazy, man. There was, for long periods of time, there was no running water. Obviously, there's no bathrooms. If you had to, if you had to urinate, you walked over and you found a piss tube, which was basically a piece of PVC that they had pushed through the wall to the outside of the compound and you pissed in the tube and it, it went away onto the other side of the wall. So I guess it was, you know, right. away from your immediate area. You had to take a dump. You grabbed a wag bag, opened it up, unfolded it around a little makeshift toilet you had, do your business tuck the little baggie in, zip it up, and then walk it over and throw it in the burn pit. Mm. So, I mean, it was extremely primitive. And it was, you, know, you live like that for seven months and life kind of gets a little turned upside down, I guess. Were you at Fab Nole for the entire deployment? Yeah, it, with the exception of a period of about, well, I guess it was 21 days. So I ended up getting promoted. It was a combat meritorious promotion while I was in Nole. So I went, I was promoted from a lance corporal to a corporal. And then once I was promoted to corporal, they wanted to send me to corporal's course. And at that time, I think the senior leadership kind of thought corporal's course was going to be like a vacation from what we were doing. And honestly, and I, I wouldn't say this to like talk down about the course. It, it kind of was right. It was a nice little break. I was, they, they flew me out to Leatherneck. I was on Leatherneck for three weeks. I had access to showers and running water and a chow hall and, uh, you know, phones that I could use every day to call my wife. And so it, it, while I was going through this resident NCO course, it, it was a little bit of a, a break from what was happening in Sangin. Yeah. Can you talk about, you know, your day-to-day operations, like a little bit about what you were doing um, day in and day out when you're on the FOB? Yeah. I mean, so every day was a little bit different, right? You, as a as a mechanic, which was what I was doing, a lot of the gear that we were seeing had been so used and abused that by the time it got to us, like there were major repairs needed. Like you'd open up a generator and you'd open up the doors where you could see the engine and you'd have a you know big old hole in the crankcase where they had run it for so long without oil that it just shot a piston rod right out through the side of the uh the crankcase or you know, they had ran it without a fuel filter or they had ran it with a bad oil filter for a thousand hours or 2000 hours. So a lot of the stuff was, you know, we'd, we'd get something in, we'd diagnose it. We'd wait on parts coming up from Leatherneck. And that was a whole nother ordeal, you know, when we, when convoy, so they'd have to send out convoy Sonole to bring parts and gear and supplies. And, uh, you know, that was always a huge operation. They'd let us know when these convoys were leaving Leatherneck. And these things are probably loaded with like, I don't know, 15, 20 million dollars worth of gear, Ooh. supplies, guaranteed one of them gets blown up along the way. And so those supplies and gear are lost and the rest of the convoy eventually makes it up to Nole. 
we spend 12, 15, 18 consecutive hours to unload this as quick as possible. The, uh, the convoy guys hang out for a couple of days, get a little breather, and then go right back to Leatherneck. And then we see them again in, you know, six or eight weeks or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, every day was different, right? One day I'd be working on a generator. One day I'd be unloading a convoy. I was the only generator mechanic for the first probably four and a half months I was there. And so basically any piece of gear that produced power in the entire AO was my responsibility. Hmm. And eventually this gunny, this gunny from three, five found out that I was a generator mechanic. He's like, Oh my God, we need you. Right. Like you have to come out with me. I need you to take you to Sangin Badar. I need you to take you to Amu. There's all these little, tiny little patrol bases and combat outposts up in the area. It's like, we have these pieces of gear up there that aren't running. And so our dudes, they don't have comm gear. They don't have this. They don't have that. And so, you know, he, he went over and talked to the gunny that I was working for. It's like, Hey, we need to take Hagerman out. So I would load up with QRF and I stuff my little magazine pouch with as many tools and spare parts as I thought that I could fit in there. And, uh, I'd go out with QRF. They'd pull up to a fob or a cop drop me off. I'd work on some gear for a while. They'd come back and pick me up the next day or a couple days later, go to the next one, same thing. And here I am, right? So like to your point earlier, Matt, I'm a generator mechanic, right? And I'm like, okay, I'm in the shit in Afghanistan. I'm at this combat outpost. We have to go to another combat outpost. QRF is hours away. So like, okay, we're just going to walk. So get, you know, mount up for a patrol. We're going to patrol from here to here. And then when we get there, you can work on that gear. There we go. Right. So here I am, general mechanic out patrolling in the middle of the streets and saying in Afghanistan, it was just kind of this unreal moment for me. I was like, well, here we are. So let's, uh, let's do the thing. So yeah, there, there was no real normal day to day towards the middle of the deployment. Three, five had suffered so many casualties and injuries and amputations, et cetera, that they were running short on manpower, obviously. And so we started getting put into the rotation for guard duty, right? So around the FOB, there's these, call it a post or a watchtower or some sort of elevated position where you'd go up and you'd stand there and you'd watch for a period of four to six hours and make sure that nobody is coming up to the walls. Nobody's burying IEDs outside the gates. You know, a couple of the posts had crew serve weapons, uh, and you just, you'd hang out and you'd, that's what you did. And you reported things. And I actually haven't thought about my deployment in this much detail since I got home. So I'm, I'm like, this is interesting to have these conversations. I don't know if anybody's really asked me those questions directly. And so having to kind of, you know, think through it is a little bit of a, a unique experience right now. Yeah. There's kind of a, well, it's a, you know, a foundation of the Marine Corps ethos that uh, every Marine is a rifleman. And it's also a bit of a running joke because it's very much not like that <laughs> for a lot of Marines. But in your case, it was um, that you go from being a mechanic to, you know, uh, a rifleman patrolling and and getting out there and, and being on patrol. Yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, I mean, can you describe like what the process was in in finishing up deployment and coming back to Miramar? Yeah. So, you know, I think it was April timeframe, April or May timeframe is when we we're slotted to come home. And so as we we're kind of nearing the end of our rotation, things had started slowing down a little bit. 
And eventually at one point they're like, oh, actually I do have a funny story for you before I dive into that. So we're nearing the end of our deployment. And interestingly enough, one of the things they decided to issue us were the, you know, those Nalgene bottles. They're like the clear plastic BPA free, big mouthed, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So they, they issued us these right for our deployment and they gave everybody two of them. And, uh, one of my, one of my buddies, he's like, well, I'm just, this is my new protein shaker. Right. So he'd use it as a protein shaker and whatever, whatever. So, and this guy's notorious for like misplacing things. So, you know, maybe a month or six or eight weeks into this deployment, he's like, Hey, I can't find my protein shaker. Yeah, well, that sucks. And nobody ever really talks about it again. And then like maybe 10 days before we're supposed to go home out of nowhere, he's like, Oh dude, I just found this. And he's like, you have to smell it. And I was like, yeah, right. Dude. Like, I, there's no, you couldn't pay me enough money to smell that. He's like, no, seriously, you have to smell it. And I was like, nope. He's like, okay, but seriously smell it. And he opened it and like, it was the most putrid, wretched rant. Oh my, it was disgusting. <laughs> so anyway, we're joking about this, right? It's the most disgusting smell anybody had ever smelled in their entire lives. And uh, he's like, yo, what should we do with this? I was like, I don't know. And we were out behind the mud hut and there was this little hole that somebody had dug or cut or chiseled out, you know, maybe a six inch diameter hole or something like that. And it went straight into that office where all of our staff NCOs were kind of working, <laughs> you know, quote unquote, working out of. Yeah. And so it's like, hey, should I pour it in there? I was like, yes, <laughs> definitely pour it in there. So he does, right? He pours the contents of this protein shaker into this hole. And I kid you not, within 15 seconds, it was like ants you know, <laughs> evacuating out of an anthill. They come running out of this office, like gagging talking about how disgusting it was and you know they got in they were furious and this <laughs> this witch hunt like immediately kicked off i knew who it was he knew who it was there was like one other person who knew that it was us and nobody said a word about it and so like okay good you guys want to play stupid games you know very good and so they sent us out to the expansion lot where all the uh you know broken down gear was and that's where all the moon dust was and if you don't know what moon dust is it's basically this powdery silt that has the consistency of like talc or chalk and it's deep right like it's eight ten inches deep so they send us out to the expansion lot and like okay good police call the expansion lot and, and if you don't know what police calling is you line up in a row you know shoulder to shoulder next to your buddy and you walk and anything that you see on the ground that doesn't belong there i.e trash inorganic material you pick it up. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I kid you not, we were police calling that expansion lot for probably like five hours that day, just because they had <laughs> nothing else for us to be doing. Yeah. So that's, you know, that wrapped up the, that, that was the, uh, the bow on the present of that incredible deployment. Was police <laughs> Did calling. they ever find out it was you? Like, are you, no, are you revealing no. the secret now? Uh -oh. Yeah. So like if any of you, you know, I guarantee no, none of them are listening to this, but the secret gets out, you know, it was us. It was us suckers. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Surprised they didn't like put their chem warfare gear on or something and just keep working. Yeah. You know, shit, they could have, but I guess that wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't in the plans for that day. <laughs> so, uh, 
so yeah, you know, that happens little, little light, lighthearted moment at the end of a, a pretty crazy time. Helos come in, pick us up, start going home. And I think my tinnitus came from the, the, uh, the Hilo ride back to Leatherneck. So same thing, you know, it's, it was actually like midday going home. It was bright enough out and something starts happening. And I was sitting right next to this 50 cal, this door mounted 50 cal. And I had earplugs in, but for whatever reason, this dude decided that he needed to fire some shots off from his 50 cal. And so, you know, 12 inches away from my head, this 50 cal starts going off and just, you know, <laughs> blew my eardrums out. Oh my God. Yeah. So that was pretty fun. But then, you know, we landed Leatherneck, hang out for like a week. There's not a whole bunch going on. They're just making sure people don't get in trouble. And at that point, you know, we were reunited with the rest of the folks from CLR 15. So we left, the, we separated from the folks from third battalion, fifth Marines kind of went back over to the rest of these, the guys uh, at CLR 15. And, you know, the amount of questions that they were asking us about our time out there, because I mean, if you Google three, five, or if you look up third battalion fifth Marines and saying in, like you'll be inundated with articles that talk about just yeah. the brutality of that deployment. Mm. And that news had obviously traveled back to Leatherneck. And so, you know, they're like, yo, you guys were out there and you, you know, this and this and yeah, like it was crazy. And so we got a whole bunch of questions. We eventually get home, a series of events coming home, nothing too crazy or exciting. I guess one of the funniest parts about coming home is that we were on this big, I don't even know what it was, but, I think it was when we landed in Maryland and we were supposed to be going to Pendleton, there were like six or seven air force dudes on the plane. And so the entire flight had to make a redirect. And then we landed at, what is it? March air force base, air force base. It's in Vegas. Mm -hmm. We landed there just so these guys could get off. And then the whole, you know, the rest of our battalion sat around for like six or seven hours watch them get to reunite with their families <laughs> and then but we loaded back up and then we went back to California. So, you know, it was good. And then, uh, you know, life kind of, I don't know if I would say that life resumed as usual or as normal after that. It was probably within a week of that coming home from that deployment. I actually decided that I was getting out of the Marine Corps. You know, if you had asked me any time before that, if I was going to do 20, I was for sure going to do 20. Um, I was motivated. I was a hard charger. I was squared away. You know, like I said, I, I ended up getting promoted combat meritoriously. And so I, I thought that that was going to be my life and my career. And, uh, I get home, we get back to our unit. We check back into our unit at Miramar and, uh, this guy, master Sergeant Singletary. And if you're hearing this master Sergeant Singletary, good for you. Pulls the three of us into his office who had been in Nole, And he's, he's like, Hey, I just want to let you guys know, Y'all ain't shit. Y'all didn't do shit. You're not the tip of the spear. Now keep in mind, we came, we didn't say anything. When we got back like news had already traveled to our unit about what was going on. And for some reason, this dude took it upon himself to just decide that we needed some humility. I don't know. I don't know what his purpose was, but he pulled us into his office and kind of, you know, belittled us for a while. And that day I was like, okay, I can either, separate from the Marine Corps while I still love it because I did. I absolutely loved it. There were hard times for sure, but I was like, I can get out while I love it or I can stay in for too long until I get to the point where I'm that dude behind the desk 
just hating life and having to take it out on other people. So that's, that was the day I decided to get out. Damn. Yeah. So you're still trying to wrap your head around this whole deployment and you get back to your home base where you should feel, I don't know, kind of safe and and okay. And then basically your leadership is telling you that you're not shit. Yeah. Which is whatever, you know, like, yeah, whatever dude. Like if that's what makes you feel good and that's how you sleep at night, (laughs) talking down to whatever, you know, I guess the, the cherry on top is this dude had spent 14 years as a gunnery sergeant and he had just picked up master sergeant and had zero combat deployments under his belt. Mm. And so, you know, Mm. this is neither here nor there. This, this matters nothing to the story really. I just, yeah. You know, that's why I got out. Yeah. I mean, so how long did you have left on your contract when you got back and, and from when you discharged? Yeah. So it was probably just under two years that I had left on my contract, maybe like 18 months or something. Mm. So it was fine. You know, I kind of settled back into some ground side maintenance stuff. I took the opportunity to do some extra training. I, you know, I did my McMap stuff and I, I thought that I was going to be a, a McQuiz instructor. I'm pretty good at swimming. So I was like, yeah, I'd be fun to do that. Mm. And I went over for the screening and they're like, that broke me off. Right. Like, yeah, you're not, you're a good swimmer, but you're not to the level where you'd have to be, where you could be an instructor. So I did that for a while. And then with the encouragement of my wife, I started going to school in the evenings. You know, education was not a huge thing in my family. And I I didn't know if I was going to go to college. It was not super high on my priority list or on my radar. Uh, And with her encouragement, I enrolled in one of the community colleges that were on base. And I'd go a couple times a week in the evenings. And I did that. And right before I separated from the Marine Corps, I got my associate's degree. I was like, hey, that's pretty cool. Like, I have a degree. And at this point, I'm the only one in my family with a degree. And I thought that was kind of, I thought that was kind of neat. And so that kind of helped with the transition. I knew that getting out of the Marine Corps, I was going to go to school. And so started applying to some different schools. Wasn't sure if we wanted to stay in San Diego, uh, go home to Utah or try something new and come to Texas, which is where my dad and stepmom had been for, you know, a decade or so. And I'm like, yeah, let's, let's try Texas. It's something new. It might be something kind of fun. So that's, that's how we ended up here. It was just kind of by chance, I guess. Yeah. And take us into, um, I mean, what, yeah, what did you do when you, you got out, you're going to school? Um, I mean, what did you find yourself doing, um, when you had time for yourself really, um, discharging from the military where you're, where you're always regimented and sort of like held to somebody else's, um, schedule. Now you've got all this time to yourself. What did you find yourself doing? Yeah. So while I was in California, I'm trying to think of the best way to preface the story. So what I found myself interested in and what my hobbies were, um, I did a lot of like off-roading. I tried dabbling in cycling when I got home from Afghanistan. So I'm back, you know, back way up. I I biked a whole bunch in high school. I uh, got a paper out so I could buy a nice bike and I bought myself a 2004 Kona Stinky. Okay. And I just thought that I like that was the absolute sickest bike in the world. And I'd go ride it to I Street. Um, at the time, Jackass was real big and popular. And so there was a park by our house. Where I was like, I'm going to ride my bike off that roof and uh, did and didn't go super well. Uh, but it was an awesome bike. You know, it was it was super cool. And um, I ended up selling it when I was at Miramar because I needed money 
to buy tires for my truck. Once again, Lance Corporal sold my bike, got some money, um, got home from Afghanistan. I was like, I'm going to buy a Land Cruiser. I had always wanted one. And so I started looking around. Long story short, I bought a Land Cruiser, started working on it, loved it. And that was where a lot of my efforts and times and passions went into. And so that was where I was in my life when I got out of the Marine Corps. I uh, came to Texas, was still pretty big in the Land Cruiser scene, did some off-roading, did school. So, you know, my days consisted of school and gym and homework. Within a couple of years, we decided that we were going to start a family and start having some kiddos. We had our first baby in 2014. And then 13 months later, her sister was born. So we had our first two back-to-back when my second was born, she was born two days after I graduated from my undergrad. So I graduate and have a baby born, my second baby. I know that my GI Bill is going away. Um, I had been looking for a job for like six months and for whatever reason, could not find a job. We, at the time, were living at my parents' house. You know, grateful to them, they let us crash there for a couple of years. I was like, yeah, because this is this is not a good situation. <laughs> I I just finished college. I have two kids and I have no job. So what's next? All right. So I ended up getting a job at Rudy's, which is if you come to Texas, Rudy's Barbecue. It's it's delicious food. I worked there for a while, and uh, ended up eventually getting a job working for USAA. When I joined the company, I joined as a policy service. Um, I was doing policy servicing for auto and property. So it was a call center job, right? And that's kind of what led me back into mountain biking. So here I am fairly young still, you know, in my twenties, I've got two kids. I just finished my undergrad. I think at that time I had applied to grad school and I eventually got, ended up getting into grad school. And so I just have like all these stressors, right? And on, on top of that, the top, top of like working and corporate life and corporate stressors, I had a lot of stuff from my deployment that never really, at that point, I hadn't worked through or talked through. Mm. So there's, you know, I don't, if you want to call it PTSD, that's fine. You can call it PTSD, but it was it was more just like a lot of uncertainty. Plus, you can both attest to this. Once you separate from the military, you you kind of flounder for a little while, right? You're you're unsure of what your purpose is, mm-hmm. right? Because for four years or eight years or twenty years, however long you're in the military. Every day you wake up and you put on your uniform, tie your boots, walk out the door. You know exactly what you're going to do. You know exactly what your role is. You know exactly what your world consists of and where you're allowed to go and when you're allowed to go there. And right. And so you get your GD 214 and like, you know, you can go home or you can go wherever you want to go. Like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, I, I, I don't know <laughs> what that even means. Right. Yeah, literally, uh, like with that, they'll they'll pay to move you wherever, right? Like, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you just like pull out a map. Yeah. So you know, it's crazy. So I'm kind of dealing with all this stuff, and I just on a whim, I jumped on Craigslist, and I found a. It was a 2004 Kona Dog Deluxe. So I was like, hey, I know Kona. That's the kind of bike <laughs> I used to have, and mm-hmm. that looked like a fun bike, and so. I ended up buying this bike on Craigslist and I'd start riding as much as I could. You know, when I got back into the sport, I was wearing jeans 
and tennis shoes and probably like Home Depot gloves. Not that you can't wear yeah. that stuff, but you know, I, I, I didn't have cycling specific apparel. I didn't have the stuff that I needed, but very, very, very quickly fell right back in love with the sport. And I started to notice how it started, it became this like pressure release valve for me. Right. So at work all day and I'm working in the call center, taking all these stressful calls. I'm like, Hey, I know that in a couple hours I can leave this place and I can go ride my bike and I can do that for a couple hours before I have to go to grad school in the evening. Mm. And it would be just this time that I would really look forward to. And it started to have really positive impact on my life. And then as y'all know, N plus one is the perfect amount of bikes, right? So I had this Kona and I saved up some money and then I had a 2014 specialized Enduro. And I was like, Oh, this is the sickest bike on the world. <laughs> you know, it had Kashima coating on the forks and on the rear shock. And, you know, I thought it was cool. Um, and, and then I had an extra bike. So I started inviting people to go with me, whether it was people, uh, you know, vets that I had met in my program at school or at work. And I eventually worked myself out of that call center environment. And I, I took a job in our procurement department. And one of the guys on my team had just joined the team, had just retired from the Marine Corps. He was a lieutenant colonel. He did, you know, 23 years. And he kind of became my battle buddy, you know, because he's going through this transition. I kind of knew what he was going through and experiencing. So we started running together in the mornings. And I was like, hey, do you have a bike? It's like, I actually do have a bike. Yeah. So I started going on bike rides in the mornings before work. And uh, it was on those bike rides that I started to have this thought process or, I don't know, the wheel started turning, right? Like, hey, this is this is something that's I love. It's really helped me. Bill seems to be enjoying himself. He seems to like this. I bet there's a whole bunch of other vets out there that could really benefit from being able to experience this. Mm. And so after, you know, six or seven months of doing that and kind of working through and thinking out loud and having Bill kind of bounce back ideas, I kind of eventually decided, hey, this is something I'm going to go forward with. I'm going to, I'm going to start a program. I'm going to start a nonprofit and we're going to allow vets to have access to bikes and experiences that they normally wouldn't have access to. And so that's really how the dirt therapy project started. It wasn't like I, got out of the Marine Corps and I'm like, Hey, I'm going to start a nonprofit. It just kind of very naturally evolved out of this. Yeah. You know what I kind of found to be a, a need or a, a missing element out there. Yeah. I mean, can you explain a little bit like what, what exactly does the dirt therapy project do? Is it, are you connecting veterans to mountain bike events? Are you providing bikes? Like what, what is kind of like the bottom line mission for dirt therapy project right now? Yeah. So, you know, primarily our mission is to get that's, outside get out to the great outdoors get some fresh air be with like-minded folks find your find your tribe find your community and really kind of find your own path to healing mm. now how we've how we've done that has has kind of evolved over the last few years so we've been around for four and a half years you know to your point when i started the program i was like hey i need to find a way to raise 10 grand i will buy four bikes and four helmets and i will just start hosting local rides and inviting people out and they can come use our gear at no cost. Cause you know, using myself as the example, I knew when I transitioned out of the Marine Corps, I didn't have three to $5,000 for a bike. I just, mm -hmm. that was money that didn't exist in my life at that point. And so I didn't want that to be a barrier. 
and be what stopped folks from finding something that could really help them. So I was like, okay, we'll buy four bikes, we'll buy four helmets, we'll have events. And that was the goal for a long time. We started buying, originally we started buying fat bikes, super fun to ride, low maintenance cost, pretty forgiving. I got a great deal on a couple of them. So we had a few of those for a while and people would love them and ride them. And probably for the first, you know, year to year and a half, that was really as big as the program got or like ever seemed to get. Um, meaning we'd have a, once a week we'd meet together and three or four people would show up and we'd have a ride and that would be it. And then it started to expand from there. And, you know, through the power of Instagram, people started seeing what we were doing and, Hey, that's pretty cool. You know, we'd like to open a chapter here. And so really early on, this guy named David reached out from North Carolina, another Marine. He's like, Hey, I love what you're doing. Um, I think there could be a really, really cool need for that here in North Carolina. What do you think about opening a chapter here? And at my, you know, in my mind, it's like, okay, I don't even know what that means, but yeah, let's do it, man. Like, let's, let's open a chapter. I had just received our official, you know, we became uh, incorporated through the state as an entity and then filed for 501c3 through the IRS, got that. And so this was all very new for me, right? This is all like adventure learning, kind of find out as you go. But he's like, hey, let's do a chapter. Okay, yeah, awesome. So we had a chapter in North Carolina. And then over the last couple of years, it's just really seemed to have this momentum. You know, obviously, I've poured hours and, and tons of work into this, but the, it's really started to grow. And so it's to the point now where we're in nine states. We have eight active chapters. So one chapter incorporates two states up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and really what it's evolved into is providing an outlet or providing a space where like-minded individuals who have a similar passion can get together, hang out, ride bikes, talk about whatever it is they want to talk about, and just have a good time, right? Because sometimes you can talk to folks outside the veteran community, and I, I could have had this exact same conversation with somebody outside the veteran community, and half of it they wouldn't understand just because of verbiage or because of experiences that they, they really couldn't comprehend, right? Mm. But you sit down with a bunch of vets and everybody knows exactly what you're talking about. They know what it's like to be deployed or they know what it's like to be on active duty or they know what it's like to have a, you know, a leader they don't like or whatever the case may be. Um, so it's, it's, that's kind of how it's evolved. So, you know, locally we host monthly rides and they've, what started out as something that would have four or five participants has now grown here in San Antonio, which is our, the flagship chapter where we started our monthly rides are starting to attract upwards of 50, 60, 80 people. Sometimes mm. we had an event out at flat rock ranch in the spring where one of our, our biggest donors, um, helicopter, they're a, a helicopter broker. They're like, Hey, let's, let's bring a helicopter out to your event. <laughs> and I was like, wait a second. What did you say? Like, yeah, let's bring a helicopter out. And after the ride, we'll take folks around and we'll fly them around and they can see flat rock from the sky. Oh, cool. And dude, like it just completely blew my mind, right? Like just having that as an option on the table from something that started, didn't even exist four years ago. And now people are like, Hey, let's bring out a helicopter and let's fly around. And then you, you know, all your folks can take rides on this helicopter. So, you know, we probably had a hundred people that showed up to that event next week. We've got an event at spider mountain and, uh, you know, that's our, our, one and only park here in Texas. It's lift, 
lift access park. But, you know, the interest is the helicopters coming out again. We're going to do a golf ball drop. We've got a, a bike that we're raffling off the transition dirt jumper that uh, is custom painted. It's got a custom camo paint job on it. CBS morning is putting a crew together to come out and they said they're going to try to put together a piece that's going to air nationally on veterans day. And so just oh, wow. awesome. So it's, it's, it's just been insane, right? Like, I don't know. I guess my thoughts are wandering just a little bit, but like, it's so fun to be a part of something like this and just see as you try to do good things, how those good things can start to take on a life of their own and grow exponentially because other people love what you're doing. They see the sincerity, they see the stoke and the passion, like, Hey, this is cool. And you know, by no means. do I take credit for being this like end all be all awesome dude. Like it was an idea that I had and has now turned to this thing. Like is helping, you know, a few hundred people a month are meeting and writing as part of the dirt therapy project. And I just, I think that's incredible. Yeah. I think it's awesome. I mean, like you mentioned, people can flounder when they get out. And so for me, I got out in 2010, I was 23 years old and um, yeah, I, I kind of, you know, you, you get out of like this really, I put it like you, you live like next to 30 of your best friends, like at a time. And like, there's, you're never like an arm's distance away from like somebody that, you know, you'll, go work out with or, or go to the bar with, or, or you can get a ride somewhere or whatever. And then you go home and um, you don't really have that anymore. And so for me, it was when I transitioned, I drank a lot. And uh, I think just like coping with that loss of community and everything. And I don't know if like I describe myself as an alcoholic, but I certainly binge drank like uh, a lot on the weekends, you know, and maybe a year or two after I got out, my buddy who was also a Navy vet, he was like, Oh yeah, I'm going to buy a mountain bike. And he buys a mountain bike and, you know, I'd be in Mexico as a kid. And so seeing him was like, okay, like when I got out and I went uh, home to Colorado, I was still kind of like searching for that, you know, adventure and like companionship and, and challenge. And, and so I was like, okay, here's this like progression from BMXing when I was younger to mountain biking to where like, you still kind of have some of uh, those same transferable skills. It's just, now you've got to be prepared to go out in the wild and like backpack by yourself. And, and you're doing it with, um, you know, some of your best friends. And it was kind of like, uh, this activity that just made a whole lot of sense for my transition. And, you know, now like seeing your organization and, um, there's a, a organization out here called VetX veterans expeditions. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but mm -hmm. they're sort of an all encompassing outdoors group and they do some mountain biking and, and yeah, just kind of like presenting opportunities to vets to kind of like find new meaning when they're still going to transition, I think is it's, it's a major deal. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Jeff, like, did you go through any of that when you got out? Um, I mean, yeah, it's, I'm really, I guess, fortunate. And yeah, I mean, I love hearing you guys stories, you know, for me, like I was, I was stationed in Colorado Springs. And so, yeah, I brought my mountain bike with me and, you know, I had, I had been biking before and did it while I was on active duty. You know, I think, yeah, we joke about the different services and, and things, but there's like a big difference between, you know, my experience in the air force and like what you guys did um, in the Marines in that, like even air force bases, um, the one I was at in Colorado Springs, certainly, but um, even like I went to a missile base in Greenland and, and all these places had like, 
mountain bikes you could rent like on base, you know, it'd be like five bucks. You can check out a mountain bike for the day. And so for me, like, yeah, I I guess I kind of always stuck with it. And once I was out, it was like, well, yeah, I'm going to keep, keep riding. And yeah, I think at the time I got out too, I feel like I knew a lot of people who, yeah, were into that stuff. And so I was always curious, like, what is that connection between, between mountain biking and the military? Like, John, do you think that, do you think that mountain biking is unique? Like, is there something about that versus like, I don't know, golf or like some other thing that people could do that, that like really speaks to that like experience that we have in the military? Yeah. So I I think it's two things, right? Like I think first, first off, we see how many veterans are attracted to mountain biking, right? And for us, we're like, Hey, a lot of vets love mountain biking, but there's a thousand other programs out there. Like I, I would never claim that mountain biking is the end all be all for a veteran, a transitioning veteran that's going to save their life. Mm. Right. Like, Hey, maybe they show up and they hate mountain biking, but they love to wakeboard or they love to camp or they love to hike or they love to play racquetball. Like that's fine, man. Like whatever it is, you need to find your tribe. Mm. But I think what a lot of those things have in common is being outside, right? Like I'm a huge proponent of just get out, side get off of your couch shut your phone down just go breathe some fresh air let the sun shine on your face like you can't be mad outside you can't be in a bad mood you you can but like you know (laughs) getting some fresh air and especially in colorado man like go outside and go for a hike it's one of the most beautiful states in the union Mm -hmm. just go enjoy it but i think another thing is like mountain biking provides a way for this community that's military esque to hang out, right? You can, you get together with like-minded folks, just like when you're in the military, people have more or less the same mindset. You do this activity that you all love. It's this hard, physical, demanding activity, which you you did while you're in the military. Mm-hmm. And then you get those moments of just like absolute adrenaline rush, right? Like try to explain to somebody what it's like to be shot at. You can't explain that. But you know, you got a bunch of mountain bikers together. Like, yo, dude, that gap was rowdy. Like, yeah, man, that was insane. <laughs> and just everybody's adrenaline is through the roof. And right, you know, I, I think a healthy amount of adrenaline rush and dopamine, obviously, is kind of what attracts folks, especially from the military, because you've had these experiences where adrenaline is just through the roof. You know, I'm not promote. I'm not condoning. You just go out and you know shoot towards each other to get that rush that would be very dangerous obviously but <laughs> you know you go out on a bike ride and you can have some a lot of fun and get some mm-hmm. some pretty good feelings as well yeah i mean how do you you know like you you kind of talk about like the intrinsic factor for people who mountain bike and like this kind of feeling that adrenaline rush and that uh physical sense of accomplishment and everything and i'm wondering like where you see community fitting in like i mentioned that was a big piece for me, it was feeling like I had sort of detached from a community. And then in, in my own experiences, I've found more community through people that I mountain bike with. And I'm wondering how you incorporate uh, community in the Dirt Therapy Project. Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, obviously at local events, it's a little bit harder because, you, you know, you get people together and whether it's for a couple hours on a Saturday or maybe it's for a whole day, we go out to Flat Rock Ranch or we go somewhere, the bonds they certainly get built at events like that, but they're not incredibly strong. 
What I look forward to the most every year is when we do our retreats. You know, so for the last few years, at least twice a year, we'll do a multi-day retreat. So a group of folks between, let's see, I think on average we have 18 people that go out. And in the spring, we'll go up to Bentonville and we'll do three days of riding. So Bentonville is 12 hours from us. So you you have the car ride up and people can chat and hang out and get to know each other and start developing that friendship. You ride together all day. For three days, you're riding all day. We all come back to the same house, tell stories, joke around, make dinner, hang out, play games. And then we drive home. And these retreats have become this uh, community incubator, if you will. You know, we get home and people are like, yo, that was awesome. I had so much fun out there. I, you know, the stressors of the world didn't matter. Uh, for me, one of the biggest impacts it had is, you know, um, May of 2020, we had planned on going to Angel Fire, you know, and this is only a few months into COVID. And we're like, hey, I think we should still do it, you know, come at your own risk it might be good for us. And you know what, man, it absolutely was like for three days, nobody talked about COVID nobody thought about COVID. Nobody was watching the news about COVID. And we had this like absolute mental break from the stressors of the world. And that's really continued on. And every, every retreat that we do, it's just, obviously we're not going to set this like hard rule. Like you can't bring your phone, but yo, we encourage you to be present, Mm -hmm. talk to people, get to know people, if you've been out before and you recognize somebody, you'll talk to them and be friends with them, help out. And it really just becomes this awesome, awesome opportunity for people to get to know each other. And then we go home and people kind of go their separate ways. And once we get taken out of the equation, maybe Billy and Bob became friends on our retreat and they start hanging out or Joe and Larry liked riding with each other. They didn't know each other before the event, but now they're buddies and they can link up and they can keep going. And so, you know, that connection just kind of perpetuates itself. Yeah. I, um, I guess, yeah. Joined is what you call it. I don't know. I'm not on Facebook that much, but I joined the, uh, Colorado chapter. And so, Oh, cool. Um, it'll come through Facebook updates and stuff like that. And I'll kind of see like that chatter, like, Hey, I'm writing, you know, whatever on this day, like if anybody wants to go and you can kind of see that like working out in action. Um, yeah, just that's, uh, trying to connect with one another and get out and ride. So, yeah. That's super cool. Yeah, we've got a pretty cool dude running our Colorado chapter. Um, so this guy named Travis has been running it for a few years. And, you know, just between reserve duties and firefighting stuff, the, as far away as he lives from the majority of people, it's been kind of hard to organize rides. And so somebody else recently stepped in as well named Dave. And Dave's awesome. Uh, he's right there. I don't know if he's in Denver or Colorado Springs. I think he's in the Springs. But anyway, you know, if you get a chance to meet him, I would jump on that opportunity. Super cool guy, super full of life and energetic, uh, Marine as well. And there's a couple of pretty exciting things coming for Colorado. So maybe keep your ear to the ground on that one. Awesome. Yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, well, I guess, yeah, onto the final talking point, you know, veterans day is, is coming up and I think for regular listeners who might not be veterans who, yeah, regularly listen to the podcast, but maybe don't know people that have served in the military or, or, um, talk to many people that have been in the military. John, I'm wondering what does Veterans Day mean to you? And yeah, how do you celebrate it? And, you know, a lot of people kind of looking or look at it as this lens of like, it's not a big deal. I'm going to understate its importance to me, or like, I don't want to have this like high school quarterback syndrome where I'm like still just 
you know, trying to talk that up. And, and for other people, it's, it's still really important every year and, and they make a point of doing something. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, what does it mean to you and how do you usually celebrate? Yeah, super good question. So, and for the, for the listeners, right? Like, I don't need to say this to you. Y'all understand this. First and foremost, there's a, there's a, I think it's necessary to differentiate between Veterans Day and Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in the civilian population, those two days kind of take on the same, let's grill, let's hang out, let's party, let's throw back some root beers or whatever. So, you know, for us in the veteran community, Veterans Day is for those who are still around, right? We get to hang out. Let's do something fun. Let's, uh, you know, I always like to go on a bike ride, obviously, or host an event, get together with some buddies. Maybe it's calling your friends or, or linking up with some people that you deployed with or share the experiences with. And then Memorial Day is a day that we respect and we honor and we remember the folks who died serving the country. So there's two very different um, tones, I would say. Now, how can people su- support Veterans Day? I think there's a lot of different options, right? So first and foremost, I think it's important that we, all of us, you know, strive to live in a way, trying to be careful how I say this. I think just be a good American, right? Like be a good person. Mm. We're living in a world and y'all know this, that's so tumultuous. You turn on the TV and somebody's screaming at you about what Joe Blow did or what this guy did or this lady. And she said this and he said that like, it's, it's nonstop and it there it's inundating. And I think it's really important that all of us just kind of take a step back and really try to focus on commonalities, how to build bridges, how to fix relationships or nurture relationships that we already have. Mm-hmm. Like Matt, you and I, maybe we don't agree politically or Jeff, maybe we have different stances on, you know, X, Y, Z political topic. And that's cool. Like that's, that's what makes America, America. We get to disagree. Mm -hmm. We get to disagree with policy. It's okay for us to disagree with the president or Congress or whatever. Like those are rights that are afforded to us, but that doesn't mean that we can't be friends Mm -hmm. at all. Like Matt, like, okay, you and I disagree on this topic, but we have, we were in the Marine Corps together or, you know, we were in the Marine Corps. We both like mountain biking you live in Colorado. I love Colorado. You know, you've got black rimmed glasses and so do I. Oh, but guess what? So does Jeff. <laughs> we all have these less, that can be so our common, much in point, common right? Like, yeah. Right. Yeah. Like there's, there really is. People have so much in common and they forget that because the, all they're focusing on and all that's shoved down our throats is like fighting with each other or, you know, I don't want to be on a soapbox, but I, I just think there's a lot of things that we can do to, to just kind of repair interpersonal relationships in our lives and just be a nice person, be a good person, do good things. Right. Yeah. Super important message. <sighs> yeah. And then, right. Obviously if you're a, you know, you're not a vet, you are a vet. Maybe one of the things you want to do on veterans day is finding a way to support a program like ours, right? There's 45,000 nonprofits in the veteran space alone. Wow. Uh, I guarantee if you're listening to this, there is something that you identify with. And if it's five bucks, if it's a thousand dollars, it's $20,000, like whatever it is that you can contribute to that program does make a difference, right? We're a very small program and what comes into our, what, what we come in, what comes in goes right back out the door in forms of support or events or retreats or 
just different ways that we can support the veteran community. So if that's how you want to contribute, that's awesome. Just find a, find a project that you believe in and send them a few bucks. Yeah, totally. Right. I mean, a lot of things are politicized and I think the military is, is definitely one of those. I mean, it's obviously one of those and uh, a lot of perspectives are, are politicized about veterans and in the military, which is interesting and, and a long conversation for maybe another day um, because it <laughs> still c- considers itself a largely apolitical association. But like you said, I, I think finding commonalities and, you know, I, yeah, I think it's important just to ask veterans about their service too. Yeah. Find a reason to talk to a vet and uh, connect with them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I know my, my dad served in uh, Vietnam and, you know, his experience coming back was, you know, I mean, there was a lot of politics going on at that time and, and a lot of people, a lot of civilians were anti-military because of the war. Um, and, you know, for him, it was like, yeah, that was like a really tough time, like coming back and feeling like people didn't appreciate sort of, you know, what he and others had been doing. And so, you know, on the one hand, like I feel super fortunate that People today, for the most part, both sides of the political spectrum, they tend to, to support like veterans and, you know, understand that that is sort of an act of service and that we can all appreciate it. And so, yeah, hopefully it stays that way and it gets even better where, yeah, we kind of all agree that like, yeah, this is, this is a good thing. It's a noble thing that, that people have done and, and supporting the people who make that choice because yeah, it is an all volunteer force and yeah. And it's, <laughs> it's a necessary one too. And yeah, hopefully we're, we're, you know, making our country proud and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. John, is there anything else you wanted to add? Anything we missed? Um, anything you want to leave listeners with uh, finally about the dirt therapy project? Yeah, I think we covered a, a pretty broad range of topics Maybe the only disclaimer is, you know, a lot of these things are my personal views and don't necessarily reflect the Dirt Therapy Project. Um, we have striven very hard to make sure that all veterans, whether you're you're a reservist for a little while, um, men, women, you are a, a family of a service member, like just just come hang out with us, right? Even Everybody's Air Force, to ride with you guys us. even let Air even Force, the Air Force. Just... absolutely, man, especially the Air Force. <laughs> Awesome. You know, and, you know, we've had a ton of support from our local community. And when we have big rides, a lot of veteran or excuse me, a lot of civilians show up just because they love what we're doing. They love the support that we're showing to the veterans and they want to come out and show their support, which is super cool. So everybody's welcome to ride with us, right? The, the, uh, the funds and the monies that we have obviously go to the vets and the active duty folks that ride with us. So that's how the program is intended, but everybody can come out. And then if you want to find out more about our program, check out our website, tdtp.org. Hit us up on Instagram or Facebook. I really don't like Facebook. I'm on there just kind of as a necessity. So Instagram would be my preferred method of communication. But uh, yeah, happy to discuss and happy to just answer any questions that might be out there. That's really about it. Just you know, ride hard, live dirty, keep the rubber side down, I guess. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks again for joining us, John, and, and telling, us, or telling us about your experiences in the Marine Corps um, and as a veteran. And um, 
yeah, I mean, thanks for thanks for the work you're doing with this organization. I definitely appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to getting out on a ride. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for your opportunity. That was a lot of fun. All right, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening. And uh, we'll catch you next week. Thank you.